just a quick uh, update as to where we're at, what we've been doing um, on Sunday mornings. We've been basically going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we started this in January. We've been uh, coming up to the end of this. We're almost done with the book of Ephesians. And then once we're done with that, we've got some other good stuff that we're excited about jumping into um, in the beginning of the new year. Um, but what, what we've been doing over the past several weeks in the book of Ephesians is really been focusing on uh, a section of passage, passages or scripture in which Paul talks about what we have identified as what's called spiritual warfare. And really in short, what we mean by spiritual warfare, and we oftentimes keep saying this over and over again, so if this is something you've heard every single week for the past several weeks, um, it's good for you to know it. If you are new here, um, then we want you to be aware of what really what we mean. What we basically mean is that spiritual warfare is the answer that we have uh, that has been really given to us that we then pass on as to why uh, there are so much evil, why there's so much evil and evil influence within this world. That it's not just simply human beings doing bad things because they're ill-educated or because they have uh, poor um, living conditions or they don't have enough money, but really evil we see is kind of personified or embodied within what Paul describes, what other New Testament writers describe as the devil or Satan. And so what he does is he influences God's chiefest among creation, which is human beings, to towards evil, towards unrighteousness, towards turning away from God. And what ends up happening when human beings are influenced away from God is evil is what comes as a result of that. People do horrible things in the name of, sometimes in the name of God, sometimes obviously against the name of God. But really what the Bible describes is that all of this, uh, in one way or the next, is actually shaped by or influenced by demonic activity. Um, Oftentimes people like to simply cast all the blame upon the devil, and yet the Bible tells us we can't cast all the blame on the devil. The devil may load the gun, the devil may put the gun in your hands, but it's us human beings that pull the trigger. So in other words, there is a cooperation that typically happens. The end result, nonetheless, is the same. Death, brokenness, destruction, hurt, suspicion, lies, betrayal. Go down the list, it's everything that you see in the 6 o'clock news. But the point of the matter is, is that this is what Paul is describing, is that even though there are these evil influences in this world attempting to undo what God is wanting to do, which is to bring healing, bring restoration, we also recognize that one of the ways in which we undo the attacks of the devil is by not being ignorant of his devices, or another passage might describe it as designs. Another way to identify it is the devil's methods. So if you think of it this way, what we've been doing over the past like five weeks really, is we've been focusing, for the most part, on the devil's devices. And the way that we've been doing this, we've been just taking kind of a long list of what seems to be very disjointed or disconnected ideas, and basically saying these are uh, many of the forms of the devil's devices that he uses against us to trap us, to trick us, to cause us to follow a path that's not the path of God. So in other words... Uh, If we find ourselves in this life, walking the life as trying to be a Christian, and yet oftentimes finding ourselves overcome by brokenness or deception or lies or being a liar or all these other forms that we would call sin, that really behind all this is an evil influence personified by the devil or Satan, and his main object is always the same, to remove you from a path of life in order to get you down a path of death and brokenness. This is what he always intends to do. So I want to read a 
four passages that we've been reading really every week. And the reason why we read these every single week is because all of them are central to understanding this concept of the devil's devices. Now, when we finish this little section here, which we'll actually do today, the devil's devices, let me just say this as well. When we set out um, at the beginning to kind of go through the book of Ephesians, I had no intention on, on spending as much time going through all the stuff that we've been going through over the past several weeks. For whatever reason, I'm not really sure why, I've just kind of felt this constant ongoing um, prompting, if you would, by God, I sense, to just keep going through this. Um, even though it's not necessarily directly related to the book of Ephesians, I mean, it is indirectly related to the book of Ephesians because Paul talks about we don't want to be ignorant of his devices um, and we want to be aware of the various attacks of the methods of the devil. Um, in some ways, it's, it's, it's indirectly related to this because it kind of spawns forth from or springs forth from the book of Ephesians and goes forth into all sorts of the books of both the Old Testament and the New Testament identifying some of the various devices. So really, I guess, to put it simply, what my hope is, is that you are taking away from what we've been looking at over the past several weeks, are being aware, having a greater awareness of some of the various devices that the devil uses to trap you, to trick you. Um, So what I want to do is I'm going to jump right in. We'll begin to take a look at some of the passages that we've been identifying. I'll begin in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, because that's where we've been. And then we'll go from there to 2 Corinthians and James and 1 Peter. Again, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, um, you are already kind of reviewing all this. If this is new to you, then it's new to you. Great. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So again, if you want to think of it this way, what we've been really spending the past several weeks looking at are various aspects of the schemes of the devil. I'll get to what... We've been looking at it in just a second by way of review. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. James chapter 4, verse 7, James writes, he says, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we see again, James basically has the same idea that there is demonic presence in this world, evil presence within this world that is seeking to influence, but we don't have to be subjected to that influence if you're following Jesus, meaning you have the ability by God's power, by God's grace to resist the devil, and James adds, he will then flee from you. Um, we see kind of the same thing perhaps with very clearly within the life of Jesus. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, you're familiar with the story, 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus was tempted, and then Jesus turns away, he literally resists the devil, and the devil flees from Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Then he finishes by that with that statement, resist him, resist him. So again, the implication is that we have power by God's strength to resist demonic um, influences and impulses within our lives and therefore be victorious. Now again, like I said, when we're talking about the idea of demonic Uh, attack or spiritual warfare or whatever, things like that, I realize very clearly that in a lot of ways, the concept that we're talking about um, does not fit within a very secular society, which, by the way, we live in a secular society, very materialistic type of society, which means that for the most part, uh, most of our culture, a lot of our culture tends to look at things like spirits as being irrelevant. They don't exist, in other words. So when we start talking about spirits or demons, or angels, or God, 
for the most part, our culture by and large tends to look down upon these types of concepts with great skepticism. Now, again, this is our culture. This is the West. I was listening to a message a couple days ago, and the guy was actually talking about how in Africa, the entire continent of Africa believes in spirits. In fact, one guy made the comment, he was, a, he was an African writer, and he basically said one of the ways in which you can identify whether or not you are actually from the continent of Africa is, is you believe in millions of spirits behind everything. So the concept of spiritual warfare for, say, someone off the continent of Africa uh, is, is not foreign to them. Um, there may be all sorts of weird differences that we would have with that um, in terms of everything is sort of demonic or light or dark or light, whatever the case is. But for the most part, again, for us as a culture to critique or criticize something like that, uh, as coming from our Western culture, we have a very materialistic viewpoint. So the point that I would make is this, is that from a secularized perspective within this world, the question that I would kind of push back to people that are kind of more uh, secularist type of mentality or of an atheistic perspective or persuasion, I would say and ask kind of the question, how do you define evil? Like, what's your explanation? How do you explain evil? And this has been one of the big questions and subject matters that's been under debate for a very long time. Because a lot uh, more secular minds would basically say, well, evil is just sort of the, the default mode of what happens when you don't have good education or when you have poverty or when you have systems that are socially inept or not working properly. So, in other words, the idea is, is that if you have the right amount of education, the right amount of money, the right amount of wealth going back into the right amount of healthcare society and systems kind of provided, the right amount of social structures added to a society, then somehow you would basically be able to do away with evil. But the reality is, is we know that's not true. I mean, for example... Silence of the Lambs is a great example of this. I mean, I wouldn't in any way, shape, or form go recommend watch it because it's kind of, but it depicts evil on the highest levels of society. I mean, the, the main character is really a very educated, very smart, very wise, knowledgeable type of a person, but extremely evil. And yet, this is sort of the conflict that's going on throughout that whole thing. And it kind of raises the question, is it really evil? Is it really not evil? Is it just part of evolution? Is it not part of evolution? Is it just natural? Is it unnatural? But the point that I'd make is this. We live in a culture that really questions whether or not evil exists. And yet, somewhere deep down inside, we know that there is some form of influence outside of us that's causing problems in this world. So, for example, we know Innately, there are radical differences between somebody, say, going, visiting a, key, a, a great uh, Christian cathedral, looking up and being in awe and saying certain, certain things like, this is amazing, look at this, versus going to the front gates of Auschwitz and having a sense of deep silence fall upon them, a sense of like, I'm at the footsteps of something of which pure evil touched. So we know that there's something inside of us or something outside of us that we can only describe as evil. So again, like I said, going back to what I'm trying to identify is that when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're basically just saying that this is the Bible's way of addressing the issue, that there is demonic activity in the form, in the body of Satan and his henchmen, we call those demons, that have influence over this world, over this society, over human beings, to turn away from God, to turn towards either the default mode or nature of our hearts, which is to do what we want to do in spite of God, not listen to God, or to be under the influence of something other than God. 
which ultimately, like I said, at the end, leads to death and brokenness. We've kind of divided it into two categories, and I'll show you the slides. First of which, we kind of described it as common demonic, and this is, again, frequently occurring actions that kind of prove to cause great brokenness, uh, yet we grow accustomed to these things, and some of these examples would be like lying and righteousness, disbelief, uh, jealousy, selfish ambition, so on and so forth. We've, again, looked at all this. Uh, I'm not going to go into these. Um, we have messages online. You can check all these out. They're free on our website, calvaryslow.com. The second slide describes what we've been identifying with the past couple weeks, more so is the blatant demonic. This is kind of a very overt in your face. This is kind of stuff that you might see within movies or like The Exorcist, but it also takes on other types of shapes and form. Uh, and this is stuff that, at the end of the day, causes great oppression and great brokenness and often leaves, when it happens, those people that are influenced by this feeling completely overwhelmed and powerless. And yet, what you need to understand is that if you are a follower of Jesus here today, you're not powerless. Even though you may feel powerless, you're actually not powerless. That in Christ, you have power to turn away from these things rather than to fall under the seduction of their influences and to withstand the way that Paul describes, that we can actually stand as opposed to fall flat on our back in vulnerable position. So this is what you need to know. So some of the things that we looked at, well, what we looked at last week was physical harm, death, murder. I think this is an important identifying factor that really at the end of the day, the devil loves, if you want to use the word love in the same sentence with the devil, he loves to crush life, all forms of life. So this is why really at the end of the day, I didn't mention this last week, I don't think to the way that I should have, but the point of the matter is this is one of the reasons why life actually matters. It's because God created it, it's sacred, it's good. It's something unique, it's a gift that God gives. Satan takes life, God gives life. This is why really Christians should care about life in all shapes, in all form, whether unborn or whether 95 years old suffering from dementia, not just simply taking a life. But Christians should, and this raises massive ethical questions within society at large and within the Christian community. How do we wrestle with these things? How do we deal with these things? How does a Christian respond to some of these things? I'm not going to be able to answer many questions with regard to this because I just need to get into some of the other things that we'll be taking a look at. But again, the point that I would make is this, is that the devil loves to do everything he can to simply destroy, ruin, uh, dehumanize human beings and ultimately to seek their destruction and death. And again, we we look at this, we know this because obviously when World War II happened, none of us for the most part were here, uh, but we've all watched movies and seen stuff in class, and we're all very aware of it. All of us recognize that something that happened there was not right. It was inhumane. It was not good. In other words, you can't flourish as a society and have somebody out uh, threatening genocide and killing and slaughtering mass amounts of human beings. We know something resonates inside of us that says, that is not okay. And... What we need to understand is that the devil hates all life, and it seeks to destroy it. So what we'll take a look at today are really these last three ones that we have here on the screen. So first of all, we'll take a look at emotional torment, emotional torment. So what I want to say about this is, first of all, if you've got to think of it this way, all of us as human beings uh, that are following Jesus are engaged in some form of spiritual warfare, all of us. If you follow Jesus, then there will be pushback upon your relationship with God. It's one of the reasons why Paul says, we've got to be aware that the devil always tries to push back upon you as you begin to move forward in your walk with God. So 
some of the reasons why. Let's say, for example, if you are a new Christian or you are just recently started coming back to Jesus and following God, you've actually discovered it's not as easy as you thought it was. How many of you have ever experienced that? You don't got to raise your hand, but if you think about that, it's not easy. It's very hard. Um, in fact, you can almost guarantee that the moment you're going to start walking with Jesus, all sorts of friends you maybe haven't even talked to in a long time or old girlfriends or old boyfriends are going to somehow call you up or track you down on Facebook and start texting you or start getting a hold of you. And you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't talked to this person in three years. And what are the chances of like within a window of seven days, the moment I started wanting to start walking with Jesus again, this old friend that brought me down has literally come out of the woodworks. And again, the devil loves to figure out ways to push back upon our advance into walking with God, following God, being obedient to God, however you want to describe it. And the thing that we need to understand is that the difference that I would make between torment and just simply spiritual warfare, even though I would say torment is spiritual warfare, is that spiritual warfare is guaranteed. It happens. Uh, you can think of it this way. On a battlefield, you have enemies lobbing bullets or insults, whatever it is, back and forth from, from each other. That's recognized as being common. It's normal. But the fact of the matter is, is torment, if you think of it this way, if the enemy captures their enemy and brings them in and begins to torment them or torture them, in other words, they become a POW, all right, a prisoner of war. Now they are subject, if you would, think of it this way, to uh, being held as captive, to torment, to torture, sometimes in some cases to death. In other words, the enemy has actually gained uh, some form of upper hand or ability to torture its victims. And think of it this way, that's kind of what torment can be. Torment is when the devil has somehow grabbed a hold of somebody uh, and has begun to have sort of a foothold in their life, or the way another New Testament passage describes it, a stronghold in someone's life, and whereby they become sort of bait and torture victims of the enemy. Now again, this may be physical, but for the most part, what I'm thinking primarily is emotional, uh, mental, um, and this kind of raises an important question that a lot of times Christians ask, is what's the connection between, say, um, bipolarism or other types of uh, psychological types of uh, challenges or or distinctions like that with spiritual warfare? And here's what I would just simply say, again, because this is, you can't answer all this stuff right now, but the point I would make is that to some degree, as human beings, we're not just simply chemicals, nor are we just simply emotions, nor are we just simply physical. So we are body, soul, and spirit. So to somehow be able to take an approach that says, ah, you know, the way in this kind of, I was brought up in a Christian tradition that basically had a very strong aversion to anything psychological, and they would basically say that if there's any form of psychology, psychological issues going on, read the Bible, and you'll be fine. And the problem is that it fails to take into consideration the fact that in some cases, some people actually need medication. Like, because it's, it's not just simply mental, it's not just simply that they're struggling from a deficit of understanding the Bible, but that they may actually have some sort of physical ailments, physical imbalances that are going on, and they need some sort of medication. So again, on the other extreme, you can have some that would say there's sort of a drug that answers everything. And the fact of the matter is, is we know that that's not true either. That even though, in a lot of ways, in today's culture, uh, especially in westernized culture, especially in America, uh, the drug companies are making really large money. This is kind of like known fact. And yet, at the same time, uh, more and more prescription drugs are constantly being given 
um, over the counter, made available, and yet people's problems don't really seem to be going away. So it kind of raises a natural question is, is this really solving the problem? Or are we more complex than just simply being chemicals? Or are we more complex than just simply being spirit? Or are we more complex than just simply being um, soul or emotion? And here's what I would say is, is, is yes. Yes, all of the above. And it's very complex. But the point of the matter is, is that there are moments where the devil can influence our thinking to such a degree that we become overwhelmed to the point where we are sort of immobile, if you would, or overwhelmed with depression. And sometimes it's hard to kind of begin to decipher and figure out what it is. But at the end of the day, the best way I would just simply describe this type of action is torment. That somebody is under this position of being tormented. Their soul is not free. They're not filled with joy. Their life is not overwhelmed with a sense of victory and God's goodness and kindness. They're not fruitful, if you would, in other words. In other words, when they hang out with friends, they're not really engaged. They're not really there. They may be physically there, but emotionally, they're not really there. Their hearts are overwhelmed with something, and we could describe this, I think, as being torment. Let me give you an example, and I'll read a couple passages to identify this. Um, several, a long time ago, I remember talking with a particular person in our church. I won't say who it is. I won't give gender identity away either, but... Um, I was talking with this particular person. They were basically trying to ask me some questions about a person that they had known. In this case, the person that they had known was a girl. And uh, the girl that they had known was feeling overwhelmed with a sense of uh, dramatic uh, extremes. On the one hand, would oftentimes sink into these intense moments of depression. And on the other hand, would uh, rise in these moments of intense rage. And so they're trying to figure out, like, what's really going on here? And I remember um, he was, he was at, uh, I can just give it away. He was asking me, you don't know who they were anyhow. So uh, he was asking me, you know, what, what, what should I do? And, and I basically just said, well, let's first of all pray. And after we pray, I, I asked the question. I says, um, has there ever been any type of, you know, sexual uh, challenges or problems within uh, this, this person's life? And, and I asked, you know, how long has this torment really been going on? Because that's how we described it. It was, it was just like torment. She's a tormented soul. And I said, how long has it been going on? He's like, I don't know, like three weeks. And then I asked the question, I says, uh, when did some of the sexual circumstances happen? And he's just kind of shocked. He's like, she was just raped a little over three weeks ago. I'm like, I'm I'm almost positive that plays into it somehow. Like she is overwhelmed with a sense of grief and defilement and brokenness and fear. She's been violated. She had something taken from her that didn't deserve to be happened to her. And that threw her into this, like, no doubt, sense of rage on the one hand, and oftentimes sinking to these low depths of, of being overwhelmed by a sense of, of depression. And we began to just pray that God would just bring healing. And the point that I'd make is this, is that we're complex people. No one knew that there was this connection between her being raped and these extreme actions. So, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying or suggesting that there may not have been other circumstances that may have been going on within her life, but the point that I would make is that the fact of the matter is this, this gal was tormented. She was tormented in her thinking, in her mind, in her dreams. When she closed her eyes, she was tormented because she would see the, the face of, of uh, a, a man taking advantage of her. This is what torment does. Torment has this sense of basically you are a prisoner at war, being crushed, being tortured, being ruined, all the while 
God, on the other hand, says, you can be free from this. I want to set you free. I want to help you. I want to deliver you. It's one of the reasons why, basically, in the New Testament, Paul tells us, again, don't be ignorant of the devices of the devil. It's one of the reasons why we've been spending some time unpacking this, because our temptation, our tendencies are to be ignorant of the devices of the devil. But then another thing he says is that really unforgiveness in our hearts oftentimes can be one of these uh, points of entry for the devil to gain advantage over us, if you would. Kind of a point of entry for us, for him into us, upon us, to crush us, to ruin us, to keep our souls in places of torment. I'm going to read you a couple passages and I'll move on. Acts chapter 5, verse 16 says this. This is the good news. Is, this is what we see with Jesus. Jesus comes into this world, God in the flesh. And the beautiful thing about this is that God didn't have to come into this world. God didn't have to enter into our suffering, into the circumstances that he found himself in. Now, if you think of it this way, how many of you, if you're walking down a subway or walking downtown or walking down an area that's pretty crowded and you saw somebody on the side of the road suffering or hurting or broken, let alone maybe not only that somebody who's suffering, hurting, and broken was, let's say, for example, that person who's suffering, hurting, and broken just threw a rock at your head. All right? In other words, they are by de facto your enemy. And now, you know, they get mugged or robbed or something like that, and their arm's broken, they're all bruised and bloody. How many of us would actually stop and help that person? In fact, most of us would probably just go the opposite direction and walk away. That's the default mode of our hearts. But the fact of the matter is, is God sees human beings, if you would, on the side of the road, broken, bruised, bloody, tormented. And rather than walking away, he walks to us into our pain, into our suffering. This is what we see. So I want you to think about this. When Jesus is on planet Earth doing ministry, this is what he's doing. Every single person he walks up to, to some degree, is sort of an embodiment of you and myself. But this is Jesus, on the one hand, not avoiding us, not avoiding our pain, not avoiding our torment, but actually coming to do something about it. This is one of the reasons why we love Jesus, by the way. Why Jesus is so good, why we celebrate him, why we gather on Sundays and throughout the week and other forms to celebrate Jesus because we have a God that is so good. And this is a story that God has not abandoned us in our brokenness, in our shame, in our defilement, but he's come to do something about the brokenness by taking it upon himself. And this is what we see with Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verse 16 says, People gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. This is Jesus' church doing the healing in Jesus' stead. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, and telling a sermon. It's a description of Jesus looking back to the life of Jesus. And here's what he says. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I love that. Like Jesus on planet Earth, walking up to people, not away from people that are broken and tormented and hurting, and he goes to them. He doesn't like sit back and kind of wait for them to come to him. He says, I go to them. This is such good news. Because some of you live, that is your world, that is by definition your life, maybe even right now, of torment. And Jesus comes to you. He says, I want to make you whole. And this is what we see that Jesus does. Mark chapter 5, verse 2, this is a great passage. I'm just going to read it. I just want you to listen to the narrative and listen to what it has to say. There met Jesus out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. 
goes on to say, and he lived among the tombs, and he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched, uh, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Verse five says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, uh, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him, and he crying out with a loud voice said. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not add to my torment. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. So in this case, the demons, to some degree, are speaking. And this guy has sort of an altered voice. um, And he begins to speak. And he says, we are many. So these demons, obviously, that are tormenting and oppressing him are many. And then Jesus goes on to say, verse 10, he says, and he begged him earnestly not to send him out into the country, or send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs and let us enter them. And so he gave permission. Then the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. In verse 15, it says, And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man who had had the legion there sitting clothed in his right mind. This is amazing. So this is a story of a guy that, you know, just Mark simply tells us limited details, but whatever it is that we know about him, is that this guy literally, if you want to put it in today's context, he's a guy that literally is cutting himself. Cutting himself. Like he's, he's, he's so tormented inside of his soul that he's physically taking it out of himself by cutting himself. This is one of the things that oftentimes in today's culture, when people actually physically hurt or harm or caught or damage themselves, it's oftentimes linked to the fact that internally there's a torment going on. There's an inner torment. And I want to suggest to you that that torment is somehow inspired by demonic activity. The devil hates human beings. He loves to look for opportunity to torment and crush and ruin God's people whom he loves. People made in God's image whom God loves. So I want you to think about this, that there are oftentimes external effects that can happen from the internal tormenting that's going on here with this demonic activity. And so what we see with this guy, Jesus comes to him and basically delivers him, sets him free. So much so, so radical was the transformation that when the rest of the townspeople come back, they see Jesus sitting on a rock. They see this other guy sitting on the rock, which everybody would have just simply written off as the crazy guy that lives by the tombs, who's always cutting himself, always inflicting physical damage upon his own body. But here he is sitting next to Jesus, no longer in chains, no longer dripping blood, but his wounds are bandaged. He's in his right mind because Jesus has healed him. What I want you to see is we have a God that wants to make whole that which is broken, that wants to heal that which is disorderly, who wants to bring order to that which is full of chaos. The devil loves to bring chaos, destruction, disorder. God brings order and healing. This is what we see with Jesus. So oftentimes what can happen in this form of torment is what I'll describe as maybe two things, paralyzing fears and extreme confusion. I think that probably defines the man at the tombs, paralyzing fears and confusion. 
This is something I've talked about periodically in the past, but this is something that I have oftentimes experienced in my own life. In fact, last night, it's kind of weird, um, knowing I was going to teach on this, my wife wakes me up. I have no idea when it was in the middle of the night. I was like on the verge of screaming. And I had this dream that I was being attacked. Like, I don't know, it was just being attacked. Sometimes I watch stuff I probably should be watching and puts these images in my mind. So I have no idea where it came from. Um, I'm prone and tempted to just be like, well, it's demonic. It probably no doubt was. But the fact of the matter is, is that that, that, was, that was limited oftentimes compared to what I've sensed in the past or what I felt in the past. I mean, there are moments and times and days where I can just go feeling completely overwhelmed to the point where I can't get out of bed. I feel overwhelmed. My soul is heavy. Um, the best that my wife can sometimes do is just come over me and lay hands on me and pray for me and quote and recite scripture over me. And I always tell her, just keep doing that, even though it doesn't feel like it's really getting anywhere. I need it. My soul needs it. Keep speaking it to me. Don't grow weary in doing that. Um, and she's like, I won't. And she just keeps doing it. And at some point, the clouds break. And at some point, God delivers me and breaks me out of that. But the point that I would make is that it can oftentimes lead to this form of overwhelming, extreme confusion where you can't make up a mind. You can't think clearly. Your mind is clouded. Your thoughts are messed up. And Oftentimes, sometimes this overwhelming sense of just being paralyzed. You can't move. Overwhelmed by fear. Um, several years ago, I remember a time when I had this, and it almost, I think it happened for almost three weeks. So I would, I would get up in the middle of the night, sometimes at three in the morning. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. So it got to the point where, you know, I, get, I tried to get to bed early, 9, 10 o'clock, and then I, I just knew I was going to be waking up at three in the morning by these overwhelming anxieties in my soul. And I, just, I would get up. And by that point, I don't know, by week one, I was just kind of like, just expected. I'm like, or whatever, I guess I'm going to wake up at three in the morning. I'm going to try to pray. I'll read my Bible, do whatever I can. Sometimes I started just going on walks um, to just pray and fix my mind on Jesus. And the, oh, the oppression was heavy. And I would say this is a form of torment. This is what the devil tries to do, to press, to crush, to remove joy, to squeeze joy out of people would. And it's demonic. And it's, very, it's the very thing that Jesus wants to heal. So I'm going to move on to the next one, which is accusation. Now, in some way, if you want to think of it this way, accusation is a form of torment. But accusation is a form of torment as it pertains to your standing with God. So I want you to think of it this way. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, describes an occasion in the future when one day Jesus will restore all things. And it says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been cast down or thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So if you want to think of it this way, the devil is like a prosecuting attorney, always looking for an occasion to uh, accuse you, to crush you. Now, oftentimes the way he does this is by bringing to your memory sins that you've done. Maybe things that you've done way in the past. Um, let's say, you know, even way in the past, like when you're in high school, I mean, you might even be reminded of things that you've done in the past uh, that you look at even to this day and you feel ashamed of. But in certain moments of your life, you might have those thoughts come back to your mind and you feel overwhelmed and ashamed by those things. And these are forms of accusation. And really one of the best ways to identify whether or not um, these are accusations from the devil is kind of two different things to maybe think about and to consider. Next slide. Uh, it kind of written down a couple things. Next slide, please. Oh, it's moving. Sometimes it moves slow. There we go. 
So if you think of it this way, accusation often creates a sense of condemnation rather than conviction. It often creates a sense of condemnation. And the difference between condemnation is, and conviction is this. Condemnation is actually, right, let me start with conviction. The Holy Spirit actually brings conviction of, to us of sin. So conviction comes to us from the Holy Spirit. He speaks into our heart. He speaks into our mind. He speaks into our thoughts. And he reminds us of God's covenantal love. He reminds us of Jesus on the cross. He reminds us of God's open arms. He reminds us that we have a father, not a landlord who's angry and looking for ways to evict us. We have a loving father that is eager to sweep us up into his arms and love on us in spite of the fact that we've done bad things, evil things, things that are completely contrary to the heart and mind of God. And so in other words, this ultimately leads to our reconciliation. It leads to our not only reconciliation with God, but also our reconciliation being reconciled, reconciled to other people. So in other words, God brings healing between us and him by conviction, as well as us and others by way of conviction. Whereas condemnation, really, the devil brings condemnation to us for our sin, and he reminds us of our unworthiness and of our shamefulness, which always leads to our alienation. So rather than being drawn towards God, and feeling as if we are welcomed in the family of believers, we feel kind of that sense of like, I don't belong here. Maybe some of you kind of feel that way right now. You're like, I shouldn't even be here right now. If these people knew what I did last night, if they knew the type of person I really was inside, if they knew who I was really six days of the week, six and a half days of the week, because half the day on Sunday I'm kind of Christian, but the rest of the week I'm just horrible. That's condemnation. That's accusation. That's the devil doing everything he can to remind you of how, how much of a failure you are. This is why there's great hope in this, this old statement from Martin Luther. It goes like this uh, in Latin, simul usus et peccator, which basically means simultaneously, am I a sinner as well as justified? Simultaneously. So if you really want to know the truth of yourself, is that yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you have failed. Yes, you have done bad things that are deserving of judgment and righteous judgment at that. But simultaneously, if you're in Christ, you have been washed and cleansed and covered because Jesus has done that for you. So simultaneously, you are both sinner and saint. That's what we like to say. This is such good news because you know what this does? This to some degree solves the tension that oftentimes we have in our mind of like, well, am I... I'm a sinner, and if I'm a real bad sinner, I probably shouldn't go to church because I don't belong with these people because I'm nothing like them. They're all good people. They love Jesus. They worship. They raise their hands during singing. I don't want to do that. Uh, they sing out loud. I feel like not singing because I don't have a good voice or I don't deserve to be here. Uh, and all of these accusations come down upon you like torment, and they drive you from the heart of God and drive you from the family of God's people. That is accusation. That is destructive, and that throws you off the path of life. When the call of God is to call you to the path of life, to be renewed, to receive and to trust what he has to say about you. So the last thing that I want to say is having to do with uh, false miracles, false prophets, which is the last one, is, again, this is a form of demonic activity. Again, I've just kind of gone through three of them if you're trying to figure out. So first of all, we took a look at torment. The second thing, we took a look at our accusations. And the third thing, we'll take a look at very quickly, our false miracles, false prophets, uh, false messengers. 
if you want to think of it that way. Second Corinthians identifies it this way. Again, all of this was within the larger context of what are some of the devices that the devil uses to get us off the path of righteousness, to get us off the path that leads to life and light from God, and get us onto a path that leads to death and destruction. And one of the other ways in which the devil uses this in terms of blatantly demonic activity, I would say, is false miracles and false prophets. Second, Corinthians, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So he says it right there. So this lawless one, probably a reference to the Antichrist, but we also know in other New Testament passages that if you want to think of it this way, the spirit of the Antichrist is anything that is in opposition to Christ or uh, in the placement of Christ. So he's saying that this is uh, generated by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So the point that I would make is this, is that the devil, one of the other tricks that he uses is he raises up people that may talk spiritually, that may have certain elements and eloquence that has to do with Christianity, that may sound like Christianity, but really at the heart of it is not a message that leads to life in Christ. It's actually a message that may uh, take you away from life. So again, you always got to go back and kind of look at it through this filter. Is the message that the messenger, in this case, the prophet or the speaker or the pastor, is the message that they're saying, is it leading to Jesus? Is it leading to life? Because if it's not leading to Jesus, it's definitely not leading to life. So that's sort of the paradigm I would suggest we all have to kind of look at. It's one of the ways in which we're able to identify teaching that's legit teaching that really helps us grow and promotes life or teaching that the Bible, I think, would describe as false teaching that leads away from God. I can spend you know, a long time trying to unpack all of the counterfeit messages and themes and religions and so on and so forth. Um, and yet the reality is, is that the best way to kind of identify a counterfeit is to really be so familiar with the genuine that when a counterfeit arises, you can just simply hear it and realize this doesn't lead to Jesus. This doesn't lead to love of God and love for neighbor. This leads to sort of a weird alienation from everybody a weird separation from everybody. This leads me away from the heart of Jesus. This leads me to giving all my money away to the preacher so he can buy another jet and not to Jesus, which calls me into the mission. So we begin to identify very clearly some of the counterfeits by just simply focusing on the genuine. So the point that I'd make in summary is really kind of the question that next slide I want to kind of finish it with is, is how do we overcome then? How do we overcome? And I'm going to finish with just a thought. And really kind of the statement that I would make is this, is that we fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory, not for victory. So in other words, when we talk about spiritual battle, it's not our battle to fight. It's Jesus's. We're weak. We fail. We will always be overcome by demonic activity. It's one of the reasons why we see in the New Testament that these people were always in every circumstance in need of Jesus. They needed Jesus. That Jesus had power, had the ability, had sources and resources that obviously we don't have that disarms demonic activity and sets those who are enslaved to demonic activity free. What this means is this is extremely hopeful to all of us, that all of us have the ability to be set free, set free from these accusations, set free from torment, set free from the lies that may be bind us, set free from the lifestyles that are crushing us, set free to follow God who leads to life. 
How? Well, listen to what Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15 states. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Paul is writing to non-Jews, and this is kind of a subtle, loving jab saying you guys aren't Jews, so therefore you're uncircumcised, uh, you're dead. And yet God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so what we see is Paul's answer, Paul's solution to this type of demonic destruction within this world. What we have is a God that the way he gives victory to us is Jesus comes into this world. Now again, like I said, the analogy I gave at the beginning, God had no obligation to come into this world. God could have completely run, ran away from this creation experiment that had gone horribly awry. Do you agree with that? God in his holiness had no obligation to undo anything that we have done. Do you agree with that? So God in his holiness had every right to not only remove himself from this creation, but he also had every right to crush this creation and start over again, should he desire. And yet the very opposite happened, that we have a God that actually came into this world and literally put himself in subjection to all of these things. And what you see on the cross is Jesus completely being tormented. Jesus being tormented. What you see on the cross is Jesus being accused. Jesus, the righteous one, who's done nothing but good, healing others, setting others free, helping the oppressed go free, giving dignity back to those who have been dehumanized. On the cross, Jesus is being accused as a criminal. And on the cross, Jesus is being lied about as being a false teacher. On the cross, what we see Jesus doing for us is taking upon himself every single consequence that you and I deserve. In exchange, he offers us our dignity back, our freedom, life, holiness. This is the God that calls us to come to him. He'll set us free. He'll help us. He'll deliver us from our sin, from our judgment, from our defilement, from our brokenness. This is the God that calls us to come. So I want to finish. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And what I want to do, so I should have done this last week, but I want to, I want to do it right now. Um, I realize that one of the things that we see in the New Testament is regularly we see the church praying for one another. And we see Peter and James and the disciples and the followers of Jesus uh, regularly calling people out, saying, we're going to pray for you because they're being tormented or they're defiled or they're broken or they're crushed or they have a sickness or an ailment or something that's crushing or terrorizing them. And that's what I want to do. And I'm, well, I'm going to finish right now. And I just want to simply ask, if you're here right now, and if in any way, shape, or form, um, you guys find yourself in a place where you're being tormented physically, meaning there's some sort of physical ailment that you're struggling with and fears are overwhelming you, or there's some form of torment upon your soul, upon your heart that you feel overwhelmed by, and you feel being cr- as if it's crushing you, um, I want to take a moment and pray for you. So if that's you, would you mind just standing where you're at? I know this is always kind of hard and sometimes awkward, 
But I, I think this is kind of an opportunity for us to say, who are you? So we can identify who you are, not in any weird way, but to pray for you. So if that's you, I just want you to stand up right where you're at. I want to pray for you. I want to have some people pray for you. Cool. Awesome. Thank you guys for standing up. It's always hard. Just why don't you all stand? Not all of you, but all of you who sense the need to be prayed for, stand. Thank you. Thanks for standing. Thanks. That's bold. I appreciate that boldness. Anybody else? You just kind of feel a sense of being overwhelmed, being tormented, whether emotionally, mentally, whether it be physically, and you want to be delivered. You believe Jesus delivers. Anybody else? Just go ahead and stand up right where you're at. Thanks, guys, for standing. Anybody else? Just go ahead and stand right now. We just want to pray for you. Okay. Um, we can do this all morning, but I'm not going to. I want to... Um, I'm going to pray for those of you that are, that are standing. So if you're sitting around by someone that's standing, would you mind standing up with them and laying hands on them? Um, stretch out your hand and lay hands on them. Pray for them. And, and I want you right now to just pray over that person. Pray out loud so they can hear you. Pray over them. Take a minute. Just have you pray over them. Ask God to give you wisdom to pray for them, that God would help deliver and set them free. You don't need to know exactly what's going on in their life. God does. Um, again, I want to just say thank you for those of you that stood. And go ahead and pray out loud. And uh, I'll pray uh, in conclusion, and then we'll just sing a song and finish. And before we take a communion, we'll respond in song. We'll stand to worship, okay? truth sets us free and I pray for those that have stood that recognize that there are some areas in their life that are crushing them pressing them tormenting them recognizing acknowledging the fact that there's some demonic activity some form of brokenness that's happening there and yet God we, we bring these things to you we bring our lives to you we bring all of those that have stood to you recognize, acknowledge the fact that there's some area of brokenness and oppression that Jesus, we ask that you would bring healing set them free Jesus right now thank you God that we don't have to beg you for that but that's something that you love to do you love to heal those that are oppressed and crushed down and broken so do that right now we pray